Morgan is a sketch for calculators. Here's Morgan, I want my sizzling bacon back. Jessica Wakefield is Jessica Fletcher, writ large. Here's a pyramid. Buy a pyramid. I'm quite happy with my passport card, to be honest. The famous fourth universal monster. Hello, I'm Tim Worthington, and welcome to the first in the series of compilations of highlights from past editions of Looks Unfamiliar, the show in which myself and a guest talk about six things that they remember that no one else ever seems to. One of my favourite completely forgotten board games is the Rod Hall's Emu game from 1976, of which I once wrote, a fully operational, glittery, bluebird skewed variant of the widely bastardised proto-Pac-Man Mr. Mouth game, involving flipping counters in the rotating mechanical beak of TV's top parky twatter, replete with authentically luxurious fur. Sadly, despite the implications of the title and his appearance on the box, Rod appears to have been lured away elsewhere by the promise of green jelly, or there was another Rod Hull and Emu game in the pipeline. When writer Stephen O'Brien joined us, though, he wanted to talk about a very different game. The Morecambe and Wise board game. Okay, now, I've never seen this before. I've had a look at the cover, and it appears to be them playing a very large Connect Four, but with sort of Andy Warhol renditions of their faces instead of the circles. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, there's a bit of background to this story. Now, disclaimer, I've never played the game, nor would any sane person <laughs> want to. The reason we're aware of the Morecambe and Wise board game is that in 1986, I had a short-lived paper round working for the local news agent, Beryl's. So this is run by Beryl and her brother, Dickie Bo Dave. I can confirm this, listeners, because I have actually been in there. It was an amazing shop. Now, the most amazing thing for me is that when he walked in the shop, it's no longer there, by the way, um, which is a great shame. It was a very, I dare say, nothing had been done to the shop for 10 or 20 years. And I had been there for 20, 20 years before. It was a very old-fashioned shop, very dusty. But on the top shelf, above the displays, were two bizarre items, which... Even seen his old hat in 1986. The first was a Planet of the Apes tote bag with a drawing of Galen on the front. <laughs> you know these kind of tote bags? Not the, like, the ones you get now, which are really trendy, but the kind of very sort of rectangular ones. PVC, like, yeah. yeah. No, 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 kind of PVC type thing, yeah. yeah. And often girls in, in schools, not being sexist there, the <laughs> girls in the schools would have these, obviously not the ones with bloody Galen on them. <laughs> so that was up there. And that must have been about, if you look at the TV show, mm. that would have been 1976. But next to it, prized place on this top shelf was the Morecambe and Wise board game. And I remember going to the shop thinking, the hell's going on here? <laughs> that was proof to me, that's quite that carbon dates the shop, that nothing mm. had been done to that shop for 10 years. Well, that also, that that's what's on their top shelf instead of like Razzle or something. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more like um, Razzle and Wise or something. You know. Do we know what year it's from? Yes, from 1976. It right. was produced by Dennis Fisher, Dennis with a Y. It was a kind of a, a bizarre hybrid of, I don't know, Connect Four and, well, the, and the Sorry title sequence. Yeah, well, they did this a lot, Dennis Fisher, because I've got the Dennis Fisher Doctor Who game, which looks like the most exciting thing in the world when you start playing it, because it's got, you know, a plastic TARDIS and, like, different coloured Tom Bakers. And it's just like Ludo. You just, like, move around these planets and nothing happens. Well, this was really bizarre. It is like a kind of a Connect Four style matrix, but with these little square panels with bizarre, like, pop art images, Warhol-esque images of Morecambe and Wise, often solo rather than together. And I, th- I understand that the thing was, you had to kind of knock the mouse in pairs or something. Right. But the thing for me is that, aside from the fact it lay on this shelf for 10 mm. years, who thought it was a good idea for a kid's Christmas present 
What kids sat there, even in the darkest days of the 1970s with mass unemployment, the three day week. What long haired, flared, trousered, latchkey kid was ever in the darkest days when a Morecambe and Wise board game? Well, let's hope some of those long haired, flared, trousered, latchkey kids buy Stephen's book, 80s UK Christmas Singles, which is currently available from the Amazon Kindle store. In case you're wondering, my favourite UK 80s Christmas single that nobody remembers is Silent Night by Bross. Probably even Matt and Luke Goss have forgotten they did that now. When musician Gareth F. Hirons joined us, he didn't so much have a baffling toy in mind as a frightening one. This is the terrifying phenomenon that is food fighters. It's processed foodstuffs come to life and packing weapons. Also, you have to remember this was the time of rock lords. So almost anything was being turned into an action figure stroke transforming restaurant. Uh, restaurant? Stroke transforming robot at the time. Well, were these actually transforming restaurants? Did they change from food into another thing? Because all I remember is seeing them in the catalogue and thinking, go away. No, I don't know I, if they have properties or abilities. or. I think they had a, a very few points of rotation and that was about it. Um, so no AA batteries required. <laughs> no, no. But it's not just the fact that they look to be utterly rubbish as toys. It's, it's the whole sort of concept of you kind of man at the top of the food chain. And, you know, you, you have almost everything else on the planet is food. But mm. then you prepare a piece of food and it attacks you. What so you, you have to kill the food twice. Essentially, it just it, it blew my mind. I was thinking about this maybe a little bit too much this afternoon and the, mm. the sort of the ramifications the scientific ramifications have, have just hit me square between the eyes and I, I just uh, my mind's blown well what I really don't get is why somebody thought food would be a good basis for a toy because let's leave out the sort of ethical rights and wrongs of the situation but the fact was there were toys that were marketed as girls toys that were like you know the super deluxe mega kitchen where it had plastic food in it as well and the only thing I can think of is Mr Potato Head which I never had much time for it's just a thing you stuck some things in yeah. and went wow look it's got a face and it's not like Mr Potato Head has an axe and is going to try and kill you well no, yeah that, that's about who thought we should A we should do more toys based on food and B we should make them evil I, actually from looking at the Wikipedia site citation needed obviously it does appear that there were good pieces of food and bad pieces of food it's not really clearly delineated as to what made them good or bad what what, what have made them sort now, of turn against each each other but. it's the division that the baddies were like fast food and you know ice creams and so on and the goodies were broccoli <laughs> and kale and brown rice come no, to save the day from malnutrition it's not even that they can't even say they were trying to teach children about proper nutrition because if they were all fast food as far as i can remember from the list that i've all too recently looked at almost certain one of the main good guys was a burger for instance now are these collectible god i hope not i honestly <laughs> hope i never ever, ever encounter one of these things again. If I if I go to somebody's house and see one on the mantelpiece, I'm just running screaming. Do you really, screaming from the house. Do you really think that's going to happen? Somebody would not just have food fighters, but would have them proudly on display. The second I drop my guard, Tim, that's when that's going to happen. Happily, you won't find very much about food fighters at Garrett's blog, but you will find a lot about David Bowie, Glam Rock, The Simpsons and Formula One. So if you want to have a look, that's atomicsourpuss.blogspot.co.uk. I can't say I was ever that frightened by food fighters, but I was definitely frightened by the Fisher-Price jack-in-the-box, which, if you don't remember, it was kind of like the clown from Campbell Green, but it used to come out of a box and go, Meow! 
and when you pushed it back in would make that noise in reverse which is even more terrifying. Generally though I found books more frightening and when journalist Emma Burnell joined us there was one in particular that she was still literally haunted by. To this day I'm 42 and I won't wouldn't I wouldn't even dream of reading that book last thing at night it, nothing in my in this lifetime I think has scared me more than the patchwork monkey and that probably includes nuclear war and Donald Trump. So the patchwork monkey is this doll that is given to this doll it's an old doll and it gets passed on I think by a creepy old woman I seem to remember that and there's a a brother who is not very well and is permanently in pyjamas and that's quite an important detail he's wearing these blue stripy pyjamas and the patchwork monkey moves like so one time the girl takes him to bed but then he's on the, the dresser or something like that and as the story progresses it's quite clear that Patchwork Monkey is independent of this girl, but is also taking her over. And eventually, there is a tragedy, and the Patchwork Monkey has a new blue and white striped patch and moves on to another family. And that's the end of the book. That's the end of the story. And you know, it's made quite clear, although only implicit, that the Patchwork Monkey has killed one of the kids. Okay, and that was me thinking the most disturbing thing about it was apparently the illustrations by Rod Ruth, who a lot of boys sort of my age would have known as the illustrator of all those books about dinosaurs. But well, what did the Patrick Monkey look like? It looks like, you know, a sort of monkey face with just lots and lots of patches. So the lots and lots mm. of patches, of course, get more and more sinister as you think of the implications of the new patch. You know, where have all the other patches come from? Uh, and that was never, ever part of the story, but it was part of the child's imagination as you walked away from the story. Now, the reason I know this story is that one of the loveliest primary school teachers in my school, Mr Pittman, used to read it. To, he used to go around the classes because it was so <laughs> popular. Because we loved being scared. Mm. It was so popular, he would go around to different classes and read The Patchwork Monkey because rumours have been flying in the... If you had The Patchwork Monkey, you've got to get Mr Pittman to read you The Patchwork Monkey. (laughs) I had other books that I liked. There's a lovely children's book from, I think, turn of the 19th century, 20th century America called Horace. And again, in the book, it's one of those really lovely repetitive books. So the story is the same every day for a week and Horace lives with this huge family great grandmother great grandfather grandma grandpa Marpa, Paul and little Lulu and every day Pa goes out hunting and Horace eats one of them that is the story really Horace eats one of the family and then he goes through and then their Pa was just wild and he said I will kill you Horace but they all took on so he hadn't the heart to do it and the last shot is Horace goes out hunting because he's eaten okay. the whole family your kids love scary books. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Horace, the Patchwork Monkey, all of these things just speak to that part of us that loves to be terrified. Mm. And I think we're really good at finding that when we're kids. What you probably won't find, though, is the Patchwork Monkey being discussed on the Zeitgeist Tapes, where politics and pop culture collide, which is a podcast Emma co-hosts with Professor Steve Fielding. And if you like the sound of that, it's at zeitgeisttapes.com. Of course, whether it was actually suitable for children or not, the Patchwork Monkey was at least aimed at them. Sometimes, though, in the age of computer games you get things filtering through to kids that really really weren't appropriate for them at all we're not going to be going quite as far as to discuss Samantha Fox strip poker which I actually had copy for the ZX Spectrum when podcaster Phil Catterall joined us he had some very strong memories of a game that really perhaps shouldn't have been made for a period during the 80s and 90s Ocean 
software would try and turn every single film that came out into a side-scrolling platform game. All of them. Every single thing that came out. Platoon, they did. Platoon, yeah, that is not a suitable topic for a video game. Other than there's a war. Have you ever played Platoon, incidentally, Tim? I had it, and I had it came with a tape that had Tracks of My Tears on it on both sides from the soundtrack. You're supposed to play it over and over again while you're playing the game. The first stage involved running around the jungle and trying not to step on tripwires that would then blow you yep. up and kill you. But then the second stage would be in the tunnels. I don't think I got as far as second so stage. The only reason that I really remember this was because I had one of the light guns at one point, and the light gun for the C64 came with, with a special pack of game. Well, it was one game that just had sections from other games that were suitable for light guns. So there was a bit from Robocop at the start, and then the second level was Platoon. And the Platoon level involved you traversing this tunnel system to try and collect objects but it was like completely pitch black and every now and again a man would pop up and try and stab you in the face which again (laughs) for children not really the best thing but yeah in terms of other side scrollers everything whether it deserved it or not got a side scrolling platformer Hudson Hawk got a side-scrolling platform game. I'm sorry, no, you're you're making this no, up. No, I am absolutely not. Hudson Hall. I, I don't even think it was that bad a game. It was certainly better than the film was, no matter what Bruce Willis says now. And then, for some reason, the Blues Brothers got a side-scrolling platform game. Was that about ten years after the Blues Brothers what, were made? What year was the Blues Brothers? 1980, I think it was. Okay, so the Blues Brothers game came out in 1991. Okay, so that's <laughs> not just after the film. It's after the film briefly became what every student dressed up. <laughs> for about two years. Why did they do a game of I it then? No, I mean, that, it got 91% in Zap64. I've just checked now. And that wasn't Ocean. That was Titus Software. Well, I think of French. So a French Blues Brothers game. I did wonder about some of these tie-in games. Sometimes. If they were just unsaleable games, they'd have nothing no, around. I- where they bought a license and changed the sprite slightly. Apparently, to make it more. they they had just a conveyor belt slash factory process for just churning these out. One of the versions of Total Recall that they did, whether it was the C sixty four or the Amstrad or something, was done in a matter of days. From what I read about it a while ago, so they would literally go right. We've got the license. Quick, there it goes. It's out. Much as they did for you know ET back in the early early days. Well, my favourite movie tie-in game, I think it was Ocean, was the if my regards to Broad Street one. I don't remember that one. Right, well, you think the film is weird enough, Paul McCartney's bizarre film about him trying to recover some stolen master tapes, which I'm going to spoil it because I don't want to put any of you through it that don't want to watch it. It was all a dream in the end. <laughs> but in the game, only I could like this. You are Paul McCartney. And what you have to do is you have to go to tube stations or coach stations or whatever and wait for your band members to turn up, collect them all, and go to the studio with them. And that is all. I had the Untouchables as a game, which... Bob, yeah. What? So there, there, were, there was five stages to the Untouchables. The first one was you're in a warehouse and you've got to... You've got a time limit to hunt down five gangsters that are in white suits who are carrying evidence that you need. The second level was almost a third-person shooter. You know the bit where they, they ambush the bootlegger convoy on the bridge? That bit. I was worried that you were going to say that yeah, was part so that's of it. That bit. Basically, you've got one person at a time that you can control, but you've got four people total. So if you, you're sort of rolling across the floor to use the ground as cover, and if you roll off one end of the screen, you can switch to someone else. So you can you can play as... The four characters you can have are Elliot Ness, whatever Sean Connery's Irish-slash-Scottish beat cop is called, the guy that Andy... Is it Andy Garcia? plays, and the accountant guy who dies in the lift. 
he's one of the playable characters despite being an accountant there's then a level where you've got to get to the train station fighting through a bunch of alleyways and then there's a level in the train station where you've got to stop the baby carriage from crashing into anything so it scrolls down the screen and as it scrolls down the screen you've got to shoot bad guys and keep pushing the baby carriage so it doesn't run into anything or go off the back end of the screen so hang on you mentioned the baby carriage was there a battleship attempting <laughs> i don't think so there was an evil dad one which people don't believe me about but there really really was and i and had it, wasn't it. Very yeah good. no it was yeah. pretty ropey i couldn't quite work out what you're supposed you're, to be doing you're supposed but... to be playing a video game there were so many games for the C64 and the Spectrum and the Amstrad CPC 464 where the objective of the game was to be playing a game. And then there were the games, like Ghostbusters, that basically played themselves. When political commentator Mark Thompson joined us, he had a lot to say about computer games as well. But he also had this to say about a certain TV programme that only ever used to show up in the small hours of the morning. That was a quite bizarre television programme that me and my friends at university used to, used to specifically stay up until half past two in the morning to watch. So it was on uh, when ITV went 24 hours, which I think was about 1988, 1989. I lived in the Granada region when I was growing up, so I think it was around about then. But I think Night Shift was more like about 91, 92, maybe 93. And what it was, I have imagined what the, the pitching scenario for this was like when they were when they were pitching it to the TV channel. Why don't we get Mr. Bennett from Take Heart, you know, the caretaker who used to do all the pratfalls, and then Tony Hart would shake his head and say, oh, Mr. Bennett, why don't we get him to wander around in the middle of the night and interview people who are doing jobs that are only done at night? That's basically the premise of the programme. But it was even worse than it sounds, because he wouldn't really ask any good questions. It almost seemed to be just after the first thing that came to his head. So two particular episodes stick in my mind. The first one was he was talking to someone who was working in a, like a pizza stroke kebab house at two o'clock in the morning. I don't know what town or city it was in, but there were loads of people staggering around pissed as you would get in a kebab house at two o'clock in the morning. He was trying to interview them about what they were doing and what happens to customers. And then he was saying, so, so what, what do you do with the pizza there? So, okay, so you're putting, you're putting a bit of cheese on. Okay, and what are you putting now? I'm putting some pepperoni on. Okay, and what are you, what are you doing now? I'm putting some beef on. Okay, and you put anything else on? No, that's it. We put it in the oven now. And then you just turn around to the camera and say, we'll see you next time. As if, like, you know, my job here is done. We've seen the pizza being created, or not being created, just the ingredients sprinkled on. It's gone in the oven. That's the end. I also remember from that same episode, as he was walking to the kebab house, there were some pissed up people on the side of the road. <laughs> shouting, hey, Mr. Bennett! He wants to be him for take heart. Did nobody shout, it's the man who created and wrote Luna? No, or, nor did they say, Isn't, aren't you that bloke off that? There may be trouble ahead, I've heard. That's the only other thing I can remember him being it. I'm children's BBC's You Should Be So Lucky. He was the presenter on. Oh, he was Vince Purity in that. Yeah. That was it, yes. I'd forgotten about that. Completely forgotten. The other episode of that I remember was um, he was in an airport at nine, and I think the fire brigade were testing what they would do if an aircraft was on fire and on some you know closed runway or something and they set a fire going on this aircraft wing and then the fire brigade turned up and then they sprayed a load of foam all over it and he's just standing around saying okay so you sprayed foam on so the wing was completely covered in foam like completely covered and then he just turned around and said is that is that going to start up again on fire there? Uh, I know it's not it's not going to go on fire anymore it's completely covered in foam okay thanks very much we'll see you next time well he just get some really weird stuff when they first started over on TV. 
with not just the things everyone remembers, like America's Top Ten and the, the IndyCar racing and so on. They remember repeats of really weird, unexpected things like Journey to the Unknown, that Hammer Anthology series from the late 60s. Certainly that was repeated in the Bernardo region. I Spy with Bill Cosby was, which... You won't see again now. No, I'm Robert Colt. There was, I remember Grenada used to put on bits of, again, probably wouldn't see it now, but shows like Shangalang in between programs, you know, the bassist rollers just singing the song. Yeah, they used to have something called Californian Highways, I seem to recall. Oh, yes. It was just them driving around in California. And the Job Finder, which is a teletext page with jobs on it. <laughs> Job Finder, yeah. I think we did used to, I don't think we specifically stayed up for that, but you still awake at four o'clock in the morning. It was almost a kind of trance-like state you could get into watching that. Well, you see, everyone thought, ooh, there'll be all kinds of, you know, sleaze and filth on. I should watch secretly on the back of my portable in my bedroom. And all you ever saw was Jake and the Fat Man. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there was that episode of Donahue with an interview with a porn star, but let's just leave that there. Incidentally, Mark does a podcast called House of Comments with Emma and with Nick Dennis, where they don't exactly talk about what you might find on TV in the middle of the night, but if you're interested, you can find it at, at HOC Podcast on Twitter. Writer and quizmaster Ben Baker had something altogether more wholesome, if not necessarily healthier, in mind when he reminded everyone about a certain range of high concept yogurts. Fiendish feet yogurts from St. Ivel. And basically, they were yogurt pots in the. <laughs> look like monsters. They were spooky wooky. Fangs a lot. Frank and Stein. That's not even a pun. That's not a pun. Rattle and roll. They were and they were banana, strawberry, raspberry, and chocolate. Well, apart from Frankenstein, what monsters were they? Uh, well, one was uh, a vampire. One was a ghost, and one was uh, Skellington. Of course, the famous fourth universal monster. <laughs> but they are all quite famous. I, w- I will accept that. And the thing was, not only did they have the faces on, yeah, they yeah. had feet, didn't they? Yeah, fiendish feet. That's what, <laughs> what they're called. But they were the thing. Like This were about sort of 1988, 1989. And these were just like... There were very few things. It wasn't like now we had to have everything designer. But there were a few things. It was like, you know... We didn't even do like the lunchbox thing like Americans did, you know, we had to have the the correct lunchbox with the correct cool thing on it. It was the contents of the lunchbox. And it was like, oh, did you get a chocolate biscuit? Oh, wow, what, what, yo-yos? Wow, trios? Now you're talking. And a fiendish fate was pretty much, the, you know, the Rolls Royce of things to show. Not only am I eating out of the, the, the head of a popular creepy monster type, but also, I'll, I'll take it home, my mum will wash it out, and I'll put it on my windowsill. Sorry, which video nasty was this? <laughs> <laughs> the yoghurt in heat or something. <laughs> that would just, like, go off, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't have a yoghurt in heat, uh, kids. So, did you, when you say you put them on your mantelpiece, do you ever reenact, like, hammer film scenarios with them? Like, uh, Dracula versus the Skeleton, that famous film. I'd like to make it quite clear. I said windowsill, not mantelpiece. You want, like, you want, like fucking grandma's asses and, you know, the, the, the rare silverware and candlesticks around the shoved them in window, in kitchen. But, no, not really. But my dad used to use them to, he used to plant seedlings in them. <laughs> That's even more ridiculous than I was expecting. Yeah, so they stuck around for a lot, lot because they were being used. 
They stuck around for a lot longer than probably was advised. Well, how long did the range itself stick around for? Well, I, I had a look before uh, talking to you, and it seems like they kept bringing them back and, you know, replacing them and stuff like that. But, I mean, definitely into the mid-90s. There was there was 16 of them altogether. And I know this because I found an eBay listing where someone sold all 16. And you, what do you think? A collection of 16 empty yoghurt pots with... <laughs> with very, very minor faces and feet sold for an eBay in 2013, Tim. I'm going to say it didn't sell. It did. Okay, now I'm going to have to readjust it. It's going to be something ridiculous, isn't it? It's going to be like 90 quid or something. <laughs> you think 90 quid's ridiculous? Try £214. Right, you can buy three Camberwick Green play sets for that. <laughs> and I think that's overpriced. You and buy I would a actually car want for that! that. You got what, what sort of car did you get? Oh, well, I will go it night. And then there were selling 16 empty yogurt pots on eBay. Uh, and I remember we must have had enough because we had a, a Fangs a Lot mug. I think it was like eight tokens and you sent it off. Oh, sorry, how much is that going to fetch you on eBay? Well, uh, quite a few quid. I wish we still had it. I mean, well, I'm assuming my parents don't. I, can't, I haven't seen Fangs out with the best uh, Chinaware. <laughs> might have been round my folks' house. And if you'd like to help Ben make up that eBay shortfall... You can find this TV quiz book, Remotely Interesting, at benbaker.ecwid.com. And now something you might not have heard before, me on the BBC Local Radio Network's Georgie Tonight, talking to Georgie Spanswick about Dennis Fisher board games. So who was Dennis Fisher? Well, Dennis Fisher was kind of a classic British toy entrepreneur. He started out actually as an engineer making springs for cannons for NATO. But while he was doing that, he developed a toy called the Spirograph, which... I don't know if it's that well known oh, now. The sp- of- yes, the Spirograph. We had one. For anyone who doesn't know, it kind of involved discs with shapes cut in where you could make sort of psychedelic designs all day long, basically. And that was a huge sensation in the 60s. And he just went on from there. He invented a couple of other things like stickle bricks. But his main real sort of selling point was he had a real knack for spotting licensing deals for TV programmes or literary characters or even sportsmen and doing board games based on them which now are just amazing artefacts because they're so elaborately constructed and sometimes such ridiculous tie-ins. I'm looking at some of them and and a a segment of your book and we've got, and I mentioned, the Harvey Smith show jumping game and that missed my sister and I because we were mad on horses. But um, what was the sort of the premise of that game? Well, basically, that was, I mean, a lot of them were kind of very sophisticated variants on Ludo. Let's, Let's be honest about it, but with sufficient window dressing that you didn't really notice that. The Harvey Smith show jumping one had plastic horses and, you know, they moved around the board, oh, who's going to get to the end first? But with sort of variants involving cards to, you know, they can do this jump or not do that jump. And a very odd kind of character to license a board game after, really. I see the Miss World game. (laughs) We wanted yeah. that and we never got it. One of my sisters had that and I believe there was there was a bit of a to-do because she was bought it by a relative and my mother wasn't keen on having it. <laughs> uh, but I can see why everyone wanted it. It's a very elaborate game with four actual dogs. It should be pointed out that for all... You know, we might look back on favourite on Miss World now. It does actually have multiracial dolls in it, which for the time was pretty daring, especially given the sort of Miss World audience. But they actually move round a 3D board to get to the presentation stage at the end. <laughs> and again, it's not that far off Ludo, but just the elaborate setup 
is something you wouldn't really see in a game now, I don't think. Yeah, there are some, there are some real blasts from the past in this. The $6 million man game, uh, War of the Daleks, Doctor Who game, uh, the Are You Being Served game. How did that work? You'll never guess what it was based on. Oh, don't. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you can be any character, including young Mr Grace. Right. And basically, you just got to actually sell clothes to people. So already you're doing better than they ever did in the programme. <laughs> but... It doesn't give you characteristics based on the characters, though, which is a bit of a shame because, you know, I was hoping Captain Peacock is pompous moved back three spaces, but... <laughs> yes! And there's no, there's no I'm free cards either. No! <laughs> what a shame. What's your favourite amongst them, seeing as you sort of researched it so fully? My absolute favourite is the one that I had when I was a youngster, which I still have with, obviously, lots of pieces missing in a very battered box, which is War of the Daleks. Oh, right. I think there were eight sort of actual model Daleks, very well, unusually well-realised ones. Because normally around those times you've got Daleks with very tall necks and the wrong guns or whatever. They're actually quite realistic. And they move round a board when you turn the the command centre in the middle, which uh, has a label on top saying, do not press, because it's a sort of raised three-dimensional cardboard board. Yeah. I imagine there were a lot of dads on Boxing Day taking it back after their children had hit the command centre and ruined <laughs> yes, the game. This is brilliant. But they, they go round, and if they touch your piece, you're exterminated. Uh, again, you know, it is just Ludo. It's Ludo with Daleks actually <laughs> moving round the board. Oh, Tim, it's been lovely talking to you tonight. Thanks so much. Well, I hope you've enjoyed that collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar. Don't forget that you can hear all of the full shows and several more besides at timworthington.org. And if you enjoy Looks Unfamiliar, why not support it by buying one of my books? Again, more details at timworthington.org. In fact, there's an advert for one coming up in a second. Anyway, that's it for now. See you soon. And bring back all of the things I just talked about, except food fighters. Take them in a bin and set fire. <laughs> fire the bin into the sun. Well, at least it's free. A great big book of articles by Tim Worthington. More details, timworthington.blogspot.co.uk. Fun at One by Tim Worthington. The story of comedy at BBC Radio 1 from Kenny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. More details, timworthington.blogspot.co.uk. Not on your telly by Tim Worthington. From Fish to Fun to Ski Boy, the ultimate guide to TV that time forgot. Find out more at timworthington.blogspot.co.uk Higher Than The Sun by Tim Worthington The Story of Bloodless by My Bloody Valentine Fockface Alpha by Saint Etienne Scream Delica by Primal Scream Bandwagoness by Teenage Fan Club and how Creation Records took on the world and nearly won. Find out more at timworthington.org <laughs>